What's up, everybody? It's good to see you, Emmaus, after two weeks of talking to you from a TV screen. Um, finally back in person after uh, our run of COVID in the house. So, um, yeah, great to be with you. I have a, a kind of a few things pretty packed into the next uh, 30 to 40 minutes, if I'm being honest. And uh, <laughs> so first of all, I want to walk through one of the probably most difficult New Testament passages to interpret. Been looking forward to that one all week, uh, as well as give you uh, our annual financial update as well. Every year, uh, since we planted Colossae Beaverton four years ago, like uh, we've been just as the books close on the previous year, just sharing what happened the previous year. So it's been our practice every year. We close the books and want to just communicate big picture finances as just part of the rhythm of our year. Um, I'm also, myself, Jay, Mark, and Jeff, our elder team, we're all happy to answer any questions as it relates to uh, the more fine, uh, the smaller, the I'm going to give you a big picture. If you have smaller picture questions, we're all happy to answer any questions you have there. Uh, but with last year being one of the more financially complicated years, I think I could have ever imagined uh, <laughs> uh, closing Colossae Church, starting Emmaus, the whole transfer of going from five congregations down to uh, essentially four congregations and then doing an adoption combination of Tigard and Beaverton. It was uh, a wild ride in terms of bookkeeping. So uh, I will spare you the details and the drama of it, but let me just give you uh, the big picture here. We started uh, 2021 with five Colossae congregations, ended uh, you know, moving from one church organization to four church organizations, uh, with churches in Sherwood, Hillsboro, the East Side, and then the combination of Tigard and Beaverton here at Emmaus. And so uh, that said, we're just going to walk through Easter through the end of the year, because what happened before that is far too complicated to even tr try to map out. So from Easter on as Emmaus, uh, the giving uh, was a, a total of $338,720.36. We actually know the cents, which is good news. We know our accounting. Uh, the total expenses out over the course of Easter through December was $402,938.87. So uh, that's, a, that's a delta, right? That, that's, not, uh, that's a negative uh, about $60,000, which was... Uh, that came from some of the reserves, ultimately, that came from the Beaverton-Tigard merge. And what we realized mid-summer and communicated to you was we were burning uh, at a rate that was not good. And so we made adjustments on our expense side, and you made adjustments on the giving side. And so we got expenses down, manageable and right-sized for us as Emmaus, as well as uh, God's people gave generously. And so giving went up to about an average of $42,224 a month. And we were able to, after burning through reserve, build back up uh, about a month worth of reserve. So um, we're really grateful for that. And so conservatively, we're projecting a 2022 budget uh, around a $42,000 a month uh, regular giving. So that would be about a $502,476 uh, budget for 2022. 
budgets and church world are your best guess, and then you steward month by month. Um, and so that's what we've projected. That's what we've approved for a budget so far. And that's what we, we think by faith feels conservative, but also full of faith. And so um, let me just kind of, those are bare bones facts. Let me just tell you a little bit about how we feel about this. Um, we want, just on behalf of the elder team, let me just say, we're looking at this with tons of gratitude. Uh, we are thankful for your financial partnership uh, in this work. It has been a complex work, uh, and it has been a good work over this last year. And so we're impressed with how God has provided through you, uh, and it's, it's been a walk of faith for sure, uh, and it's been amazing to watch God provide. Um, that said, in order to operate within our current means, uh, not what we hope for in terms of means, but what we have in terms of means, means we have to function with less staff now than we did a year ago. And so that means more ministry opportunity for the whole body, right? Uh, with every adaptation, there is a plus and a minus side. The plus side is that uh, there's less opportunity to be passive, and far more opportunity to be engaged in the work of the ministry. This is something Paul talks about. He says, right, the, the, the uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and shepherds are uh, called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, not do the work of the ministry. And so we see the plus as more ministry for all of us to share. The minus, of course, is uh, that we don't we're not capable right now of having all the staff we would like to have in order um, to do the things we would like to do. So, um, however, the plus is there's more ways for the whole body to serve. And so, so many of you already serve in so many ways, and we're grateful for that. Um, and if you're a part of a mass church and not yet engaged in serving in a particular way, let me just invite you to kind of move from the front porch conversation to come on inside. Like, there's stuff to do. There's uh, dinner to make, dishes to clean, whatever. You know, there's, it's a metaphor. There's no dinner to make tonight, um, but <clears throat> you get what I'm saying. Uh, and so if that's you today and you want to be uh, engaged more uh, intentionally in the work of ministry here with us at Emmaus, uh, there is a form on the app uh, just that says serve. And so as you follow that out, we would love to help get you in a place that you're able to serve within your gifting and passion. Uh, we're in a unique moment as a church. Let me just say that. We resemble parts of an older church that has existed for a while. There's some existing relationships that have gone for years. There's uh, community groups who have years and years of relational equity. And yet, there's also aspects of this church body that feels very much like a church plant. And it's like, it's a little bit of a psychotic moment as a church. We're like, who are we? Are we old or are we new? Well, yeah, we're, yes, we're both. And it's, uh, it, it's kind of exciting and it's also kind of challenging. And so um, I would argue that actually every church in the West in particular has experienced a disruption and it's an opportunity for a reset. And so rather than looking at it as a negative thing, I think even since the very beginning of the pandemic, we tried to say, look, if we can't live out the pillars and values that we have in this context, then we're about the wrong things. Because last time I checked, right, we, we can fulfill the Great Commission to go make disciples who make disciples in any context. And if we're not about that, right, then, then, 
then I think we're off. And so um, what we see this moment as is as a mo- it's a moment where we believe the Spirit is doing renewal in the church, where the Spirit of God is renewing his people, resetting our priorities, reappraising, like what is it that we're about as the people of God? Uh, what are we about? How are we accurately or inaccurately reflecting the good news of the kingdom of God into the world around us? And so... Um, I would ask you and invite you as we continue this year as Emmaus to ask the question, what does it look like for me to more intentionally walk alongside other people, to walk with others in community? This is one of our, our first pillars as Emmaus. The second pillar is to follow Jesus. So am I intentionally following after Jesus? Is he ordering his, his, his reality, ordering what I love and what I'm about and what I'm pursuing? And then ultimately... How am I about sharing this kingdom story uh, as a part of this local church body? How am I a part of sharing the story of good news? Um, and we know, we know that, that being engaged, being reprioritized around the kingdom of God does involve our finances. And so we'd ask you to join us in that mission and give generously and faithfully and joyfully as a pattern of life. And, uh, and so as a people of God, we're looking at, hey, how do we reappraise our commitments as the culture shifts around us, asking the question, how can I be about Jesus's kingdom more intentionally and faithfully to be invested as people who walk together, follow Jesus, and tell the story? Which brings us to 1 Peter. Right, this is why we have taken a look at First Peter here at the beginning of the year. It's this letter from a Jesus follower who, who knew Jesus throughout his entire public ministry, failed miserably as his friend, and was restored and released to be a, a faithful leader of the early church. And he's looking at his friends in Asia Minor, these churches who are Jesus followers in a hostile environment. They're socially alienated and marginalized in this region that's now modern-day Turkey. And we're looking at Peter's message to this group of people asking, how do we learn how to navigate our own place in culture from the wisdom of Peter? And so, how do we live under pressure? How do we live under a cultural pressure that says, essentially, your beliefs, at best at best, are just kind of private opinions uh, and, uh, or feelings or sentiments, but at worst are hurtful and damaging to the rest of society. So keep it to yourself. It's a, uh, where uh, the pressure from the culture is to say, you know, the lifestyle that Christians have, it's just repressive or it leads to more hate in the world. Or that's fine for you, but you keep your religion away from me like it's the newest variant of COVID-19, right? Uh, So what do we do? What do we do under that pressure? What do we do perhaps when you feel you're mistreated for that or you're suffering in some way as a result of this relationship that Jesus has with you, this Jesus that you've confessed as Lord? Let's take a look at what Peter says this morning. We're going to look at this ethic that he has for the people of God in our relationship with each other, the ethic he has for the people of God as they relate to a hostile culture, and then the foundation for that. So first, the ethic that we find for how we're to relate to each other. Look at verse 8 with me. Chapter 3, verse 8. He says, finally, all of you 
So finally, he's been in a long list, right? He's been talking about first be subject to uh, every human institution. He says, right, be subject to governments, honor the emperor. Uh, And then he talks about slaves and masters. It's like, be subject, right, if you find yourself a servant. Uh, And he says, wives, be subject. And husbands, live with your wives in this considerate way. And we looked at basically the first century social stratosphere of how the, the, the first century world of relationships this is what Peter's addressing, how you relate to Caesar and the state, how you relate within the economy, how you relate within the household, okay? And now he's saying, finally, all of you, all of you. Um, so <clears throat> he says this, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Is verse 8. So he's been addressing the whole strata of the Roman social world, and now he's turning to the whole community of Christians, and he's saying, um, actually, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your social status. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free, uh, male, female. Uh, it doesn't matter your ethnicity. I'm just t- I'm talking to the whole church right now. Here is how you relate to each other. And he says these five things. Unity of mind. In other words, agree with each other. Agree with each other about what's really important. The idea of being of one heart and mind is something you see Luke uh, using as a description of the early church. They were of one heart and mind. They were of one heart and mind, or they were of one accord, depending on what you, um, what some, uh, translation you have. When Paul pleads with Yodia and Syntyche in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, be of one mind. What, instead of being divisive in your community, be of one mind. This isn't to erase tension. It's not to minimize the need. It's sometimes for debate. But it is about the church body agreeing together about what's true and therefore what's important. So rather than first being about what's pragmatic, he's saying, be of, be of one mind about what's true. And let that order everything else. You should be asking the question, what's true? And if it's true, then be agreed on that. Be on the same page in your thinking about truth and therefore priorities as a result. And then, once you have the truth straight as a community, he says, also, sympathy. In other words, have this bent towards each other that acts in mercy, rather than judgment, right? Be, be straight on truth, but carry it in a way that's sympathetic towards human weakness. We see church communities strong on truth without any sympathy. And the result is people end up hiding, people end up feeling ashamed, people end up actually just running from faith altogether. It's just cold religion. Or you see communities that are really sympathetic without any anchoring or mooring in truth. And pretty soon, we're just kind of elevating whatever I feel at the moment. And so it's this combination. Have this bent towards those in distress that is sympathetic. It was a common term for a compassionate mother in a household in this time. And it was also a word, this word sympathy, it was a word to describe Jesus himself. Jesus was like the compassionate mother of a home in that, uh, as Hebrews says, he's this high priest, your mediator between the Father and yourself, who is able to sympathize with your weakness. 
the author of Hebrews says. So see, he says, be bent towards fault helping rather than bent towards fault finding in each other. And so rather than weaponizing truth, it's this tool meant to help in weakness. So unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. It's really about a familial kind of love, extending the kind of loving loyalty that would have existed in a, in a family setting now it expands out into this worldwide family of the church. Given Peter's emphasis on the church as an alien people in the world, him assigning brotherly love as an ethic for the church is radically important. Because as people would have come to Christ, they would have been alienated from their family of origin. And so now he's saying, look, treat each other as, the, as family, uh, be so loyal to each other that you share a brotherly or familial love. So agreement about truth, sympathetic use of truth leads to a family identity that requires the next two virtues. To be tender-hearted literally means healthy entrails, right? But it's this idea that requires that we're tender toward each other in contrast to a hardness of heart. It's so easy to get slighted by each other and just go just total, well, in our family, we call it shark eyes, right? Um, you remember in Finding Nemo when Bruce smells blood and he's like, hello, and he just wants to eat whatever it is that uh, is bleeding? He goes, shark eyes. His eyes go from like personal to just this dark black <clears throat> Anyways, we have this thing in our family where if we're like really ticked off at somebody and we're just done, we're like, uh-oh, I think my heart is going shark eyes on this person, right? Like, I don't ever want to talk to them again, and that's a bad sign, right? I got some forgiveness work to do. And so, yeah, my wife and I call that shark eyes. I'm like, don't go shark eyes on that friendship or that, yeah, that text stream would make me go shark eyes too, but don't do that, right? So anyway, you get what I'm talking about, right? Are, are we crazy? Okay, anyway, we're just mean. There you go. <clears throat> no, uh, so it says, be tenderhearted. Guard that heart of tenderness toward each other. And then finally, be humble-minded. This is a quality that would have been so incredibly out of step with the Roman world. It was actually, to call somebody humble was an insult. And so Peter takes a label that would have been used against believers by unbelievers as a smear campaign. Those are humble people. Uh, now he's taking that, that smear campaign kind of word and he's now spinning it and using it positively as, as a positive characteristic of the Christian community. Because in the Roman world, you would try to achieve honors and status to boast about, to elevate yourself. And so it was a distinctive Christian posture in the world to be humble, which originated in Jesus himself, who Paul says, though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be clung to, exploited, <clears throat> but became humble, right? made himself a servant, obedient to death on a cross. <clears throat> so Jesus models this humility, and we are a people modeled after Jesus. And so taken together, excuse me, <clears throat> these words, these, this list describes the ethic of relationships within the church. So let's just ask, how's that going? Is this what you have found? Right? Uh, I would suggest <clears throat> that we could probably all point to places where we've experienced this or even demonstrated this. 
We could also point, probably, if you've been in the church long enough, you have an experience of the inverse of these things, too. Right? You, and <clears throat> the temptation is to look at our engagement with other people and go, you know, I haven't found that. I haven't been treated that way. And then we tend to distance ourselves. We go shark eyes, maybe on the church as an institution or whatever, or people individually, and we tend to say, you know, I don't see people reflecting that. So we tend to distance ourselves. Yet what's the emphasis of Peter here? It's not how other people act, it's how you act. Right? It's like, what are you doing? Am I agreed on what's true? Am I sympathetic, showing familial love, tender in heart and humble in mind? Uh, I would argue that if this marked us, it would be a profound witness in the world. I would argue as well that these virtues are not excluded on Twitter or Facebook. Right? We don't get off the hook of living this way on a social media platform. And we've looked at the last couple of years and we've seen Christians just fracturing and fraying in tremendous ways. But what if we lived this way? What if this was the thing that marked us? this distinctive Christian character? What if instead of our physical structures or programs, we were most known for this kind of relationship? It would be good news to the world, wouldn't it? Peter goes on and he says, um, by the way, here is also the ethic for how you relate to a world that's hostile to you. So we act like this with each other. We repent when we don't. But how do we relate to the world that's hostile? He says in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called so that you might obtain a blessing. And he, he quotes Psalm 34 as his way of grounding this ethic. He, says, he reads Psalm 34 and he, says, he said this, David goes, hey, whoever desires to love life and see good days. That's the psalmist's way of describing blessing. You want blessing? Okay. Let him keep his tongue from evil. Let his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, for the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's quite easy to follow the cultural stream we live in at the moment, which tends to prize uh, competing for greatest sufferer, right? I've suffered the most, therefore I possess the most virtue by default. Right? It's the victim culture that we live in uh, tends to try to win at suffering games. And we fall into it with each other. I'm having a bad week. Oh, you want to hear about my week? No, I was trying to tell you that I was having a bad week. Right? Like, but you've had this happen to you, right? You, you understand how people play competition and how bad they have it. And so this is, we've, we've, we've magnified this on a cultural level to mistake victimhood for virtue. I'm not downplaying true suffering, but suggesting that when we mistake being a victim for virtue itself, it's profoundly damaging of what's true and of Christian identity. And so when the political realm, for example, 
fights for who's been most wronged. And Christians jump into that. And they jump into the game of trying to get back or take back. Then what ultimately happens is they try to settle wrongs on their own terms and get into power games rather than witness games. And so that's the wrong game. Maybe you personally, as a group, have been, personally or as a group, you've been mistreated in a business deal, in a neighborhood relationship, or maybe there's been some perceived slight against you. And Peter's saying, look, when that happens, don't try to get back. When you find yourself suffering as a result of this relationship you have with Jesus, don't try to get back at people. Don't shoot back. Don't tweet back. Don't get engaged like that. And so the ethic Peter lays down is to deny returning evil for evil, but instead to do good, to bless. And so uh, Jeremiah, one of those passages everybody likes to get a tattoo of or put on the, you know, bumper sticker or whatever, like, I know the plans I have for you. You understand that that was spoken to a bunch of people in exile, right? (laughs) They were going to be in exile for like the next 70 years. So it wasn't like, you know, there's this great college admissions program that you don't even know about yet. No, it's like, no, you're in exile in Babylon. You've lost your home. Your land was burned. You're here for 70 years. And it doesn't nullify, nullify God's presence and blessing. And he, what, is, what does God say to this group of exiles in Jeremiah 29? Build homes. Marry off your daughters and your sons. Bless the city. The city? Yeah, the capital city of the government that just took you out of your land, killed your friends and family, and deported you, and now enslaves you. You bless that city. I think about this ethic. It's been a part of uh, the gospel tradition throughout the entire Old Testament, right into the New, that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of being wrong to the people of God, return blessing because that's what God has done. While we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. And so the reality is, when mistreated, when pressured to go the wrong way, contrary to the way of Jesus, Peter says, no, bless. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. We're to bless and bring, bring good. We have to be very careful not to follow the wisdom of Fox News or MSNBC, they're not, they're not pushing do good to your enemies. <laughs> they're pushing in anger. Just be angry because the more angry and outraged you are, the more you'll keep listening to me, which means we'll keep getting uh, advertising revenues. Right? The way of the world is not selfless. It is selfish. The way of the kingdom inverts that. And so Jesus is not concerned about keeping the ratings up. He is concerned about the kingdom of God and its spread. So Peter says, do, two th- do, the, uh, do this because of two reasons. One, this is what you were called to. Two, so that you may obtain a blessing. And so if we think that the Christian life is primarily about a get-out-of-jail-free card, like, I just get to avoid 
avoid the bad place and go to the good place if I say a certain prayer. We have misidentified the gospel, which calls us to come and die, calls us to come and be conformed to Jesus. And so when we understand that, we understand we were called to this way of life, and there's blessing in it. So think concentrically with me from your closest relationships outward. Where is there hostility? Where are, there's, where are those places? Maybe it's a coworker, and there's just this snide remarks. Maybe it's a family member. Downplays this faith of yours. Um, and so what would it look like to take the initiative on bringing blessing rather than a reactive approach, a defensive approach, what if this week you saw them in their hurt and their need and just try to ask, God, what would it look like for me to bring good and blessing to this person, no matter the outcome? Maybe you're getting hostility today and has nothing, maybe it's not a result of your faith. Maybe it was actually just the car ride here this morning <laughs> and there's just hostility in that close relationship of a spouse or with a child, what would it look like instead of waiting for the other person to improve, <laughs> to be uh, who you wish they'd be? What, what would it look like to take the initiative instead and bring blessing on the car ride back? <laughs> what would it look like to take the initiative of following the one who took the initiative of blessing us. Uh, maybe you've been a target of this kind of mistreatment, and I would suggest to you that there's a quiet fellowship with Jesus when we are mistreated for our faith, who stood silent before his accusers, who absorbed human evil at its worst. There's a kind of comfort when we remember that he's already stood in our place. He's gone ahead of us, and he supplies the means necessary by his grace and spirit to respond like he did responsive rather than reactive. Now, this, uh, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, Peter says, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than doing evil. Peter's a little bit pragmatic here. He's like, you know, if you're really zealous for what's good, that hostile society, they're, they're actually not going to want to hate you. But, okay, if you do end up suffering anyway for this faith of yours. Even if you do, he says it's far better, right, to suffer for doing good than creating a naturally occurring consequence for doing evil, right? He says there's, it's so much better. And there's only one way you can act this way, <laughs> right? In the face of hostility, there's only one way you can really return blessing and good, and it is to set apart in your heart Christ as Lord, that he ultimately is the only one with the opinion that matters. <clears throat> and then he says, you'll always be prepared to make a defense for the hope you have, which means it is actually your hope, right? It is actually your hope. Uh, and so if Jesus 
is set apart as Lord, if he's really the master of your life, if you set him apart as Lord, you'll be able, he says, to return blessing and to give a defense for the hope you have. But there's a caveat Peter gives here. Right? Christians can be quite interesting in their defense of the hope they have. And he, Peter's really intense here. He says, make sure you offer that defense of your hope with two things, gentleness and respect. In the public square in which you represent the king of kings, do so respectfully and gently. Are you getting respect and gentleness? Probably not. Are you going to give gentleness and respect? Absolutely. And so even in, 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 in a public sphere, in a relational sphere, that is what we're to do. And so Peter is saying, look, you can respond graciously and respectfully when Christ is set apart as Lord of your life, when he's running the ship. If my anxieties and my need to be approved of, to be liked, is running my life, if my false hope in uh, anything is running my life, is master of my life, I won't be able to be respectful and gentle. I won't be able to make a defense of my hope. If my performance spiritual, work, home, otherwise, is the basis of my life and Lord of my life. I won't be able to. I'll be too anxious and too reactive. If my spouse's approval, if the balance in my bank account, if any of those things are master of my life, those will be the hopes of my life. But if Christ is set apart as Lord of my life, he'll be the hope of my life. And so when Jesus is Lord of your life, you'll be full of hope. And you'll be full of gentleness and respect. And so that's the ethic, right? For how do you relate to a hostile world? You return blessing and you offer hope. And you do so in a way that's full of gentleness and respect. So where is all of that founded? What, on what ground does that ethic stand on? Final bit of the text this morning. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God and put to death in the flesh, uh, sorry, being put to death in the realm of the flesh, being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Hold up, what's going on, right? We, we were talking about how to relate to a hostile culture, and you're talking about Noah and spirits in prison. Help me out, Peter. All right, here's what he says. Look, you ground your response to other people and God's response to you in Christ. This is how he's treated, been treated. He was righteous and he stood in the place of the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God, right? And then what happened apparently, according to Peter, is Jesus resurrected and then proclaimed what his victory was to the spirits in prison because they did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. What is happening, right? I know. All right. We're almost done, too. So I got to be really quick with this. Peter says, look, you know Jesus suffered wrongly. He was hated, spit on, mocked, beaten, and killed. And he did that to bring you to God. And how did Jesus bring you to God? He was put to death in the flesh, 
Jesus took on a killable, weak body, but he was made alive by the Spirit. Resurrection is the work of the Spirit of God. And then we get these weird verses about Jesus proclaiming to the spirits in prison. What spirits? What prison? When? What is going on? Um, admittedly, this is one of the more challenging passages in the entire New Testament, and like we're almost done with our time together. So um, I planned it perfectly. Uh, Martin Luther himself actually said, I have no idea what Peter's talking about. Okay. <laughs> so um, let me just frame it this way. There are three, I'll just give you the three views. Uh, about this weird text. Three interpretations of this passage that have dominated for the last, um, well, throughout church history. The first view uh, originated with Origen and Clement in Alexandria, uh, and they said essentially this refers to Jesus descending into hell uh, between his death and resurrection, uh, and is reinforced by the later creeds, right, where we say we, we believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus his only son, and then we get to that part where he says, descended to hell, rose on the third day. So there's some tradition that reinforces that. Then there's the view that was popular from the time of Augustine, late, uh, yeah, fourth century on, uh, which basically says, this is Jesus pre-incarnate, before he became human, and through Noah, preached to Noah's generation about righteousness, who, and they rejected him and disobeyed that preaching of righteousness. And then there's this third view that basically says this, and it's become more and more popular in New Testament studies, where Peter is describing Jesus's triumph over the spiritual realm after his resurrection. He's raised from the dead, and he declares victory over the powers, the spiritual powers uh, and cosmic powers of evil. Um, This third view, to me, seems most helpful and accurate to the text. The other two views assume some things that aren't actually stated in the text at all. There's nothing about hell. There's nothing about offering repentance to spirits. Uh, There's just simply Jesus proclaiming something to uh, these beings who rebelled during the time of Noah. And you go back and you read that text, and it very much seems like this third view makes the most sense. So let me just tell you the point that I think Peter is making. I think Jesus is saying, look, or Peter's saying, Jesus was vindicated before his opponents, and so all Christians will be, if they, like Jesus, remain faithful and righteous in what God's called them to do. So the overall theme here is vindication, that Jesus was righteous, though he suffered uh, unfairly, God vindicated him by exalting him to his right hand. And the churches that Peter is shepherding are, are to remain faithful in the hope that they too will be vindicated. And so that ought to sustain these churches, help them endure through suffering. We unfortunately don't have time to get into all the layers of this, but Peter brings this all to a conclusion and he says, baptism, baptism corresponds to this. And he says, look, um, does baptism save you? That's what he says. But then he goes on and he says, not the removal of dirt from the body. So it's not the act of baptism that saves you. Paul would have probably had a big problem with that because Paul would have said, no, you're saved by faith and faith alone. But Peter's saying it's not about the removal of dirt. It's about the pledge. In other words, trust in God. Baptism expresses that trust as a pledge of this new relationship. And so when we're baptized, we celebrate what God has done to rescue us. So why is Peter talking about all of this? Well, 
<clears throat> we could easily spend a couple weeks on these verses, but here's what Peter, I think, wants us to take away. He understands that the social situation of these churches is wildly challenging and that they are socially marginalized. And when we suffer, we have a tendency to think, perhaps God's against me. Perhaps God is getting back at me for something I've done wrong. Or we think I haven't done anything wrong and I don't deserve this and God's messing up and he owes me. And so Peter is trying to show that the whole pattern of the Christian life follows Jesus' example of death and resurrection. And baptism is this representative picture. It's a life that goes from death into life. Death to self and a life united with Christ in the power of the Spirit. And it's the kind of new life where the Christian can take suffering and failure and turn it into greatness and glory. Because the basis of our life is not our circumstances, what's happening to us. The basis of our life is not the performance that we offer. The basis of the life of the Christian is the death and resurrection of Jesus and our union with him. And so when Christ rose from the dead and announces to the cosmic powers and rulers his victory, what happens for us is we're saying we also experience in him the ultimate rescue. And so those eight who were rescued from the flood are a foreshadow of God bringing rescue through an instrument of judgment. The cross itself was an instrument of judgment that became this instrument of salvation. And in the same way, the waters of baptism are the death of an old self that brings resurrection and new life. And so the world pushes in, maybe even persecutes, and the Christian has in them, through their union with Christ, an ability to walk through suffering and be transformed. And so we celebrate that at the table, week in and week out, this reality that this is the basis of our life. It's not our performance, it's not our circumstances, it's fellowship with the living God, Jesus Christ. And it is through what he's done that we form the basis of our sense of self and worth and ability to walk through life. So let's pray and celebrate at the table this morning. God, we thank you for your victory. We thank you that in this weird, obscure text, you are highlighting just how magnificent your victory is. It's a victory over the powers of darkness and over the grave itself. So no matter what suffering comes, no matter what failure we might offer and bring, through Christ, the path is towards greater and increasing glory with you. It is a, it is a journey from death into life for us. God, through that, we ask that you would help us to be the kinds of witnesses that reflect hope in resurrection rather than hope in circumstance, hope in performance, or hope in anything else. Help us to be those authentic witnesses as we celebrate Christ, his body given for us, his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. In your name we pray, amen.